Wait, what? It's March already. Sure, that happened quickly. Well, I hope your reading year has gotten off to a great start. The world may be in a rather precarious spot right now, but fortunately we can still travel and escape into stories and worlds and lives when we sink into books. My name is Paige Nick, and you're listening to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. I'm really looking forward to spending the next hour with you and with all our reviewers talking about some of the latest books to hit our shelves. Right, so, marching on. This month we've got a wonderful mix of fiction and non-fiction, both local and international, to share with you, as well as an interview with author Ben Freeman, and in our special guest review spot, we're very excited to welcome 13-year-old Jack McCormack and his twin brothers, 7-year-old Connor and Riley McCormack, who are going to share some great recommendations for our younger readers. So, our to-read pile is teetering, we'd better get started. Recently, Vanessa Levenstein picked up Everything in Its Place, First Loves and Last Tales by Oliver Sacks. This is the last book of essays by the great scientist and storyteller, and it came out in 2019. I'm really keen to hear what you thought of this one, Vanessa, as I think I want to read it, although this book is really bittersweet. As we know, Dr. Sachs passed away in 2015. The title could not be more appealing. At a time that nothing is in its place, everything in its place, First Loves and Lost Tales, is the posthumous collection of essays by Oliver Sacks. As the author looks back on his life, there are some delightful tales. As a young boy who loved the National History Museum, he conspired one night to hide away at closing time and spent an enchanted night by himself, wandering from one gallery room to the other. But Sacks doesn't stop there. His fascination with science must have tested the most patient parents' reserves, as his observations turned to experiments. He and his friend Jonathan collected cuttlefish, which they preserved with alcohol and kept in the basement of Jonathan's parents' basement. The day Jonathan's parents were due to return, we heard dull thuds emanating from the basement, and going to investigate, we encountered a grotesque scene, the cuttlefish, insufficiently preserved, had putrefied and fermented, and the gases produced had exploded the jars and blown great lumps of cuttlefish over the walls and floors. However, Sax's writing is primarily not about charming childhood romps, even if they are setting the stage for a great scientist at work, one who we could argue had his destiny laid out, as his parents met in a medical student's Ibsen society. One can almost see the slogan, where science and arts meet. Both science and literature are Sax's friends. It is his way of making sense of the world, perhaps influenced by his own brother's mental health challenges. Yet there's a darkness that creeps into the pages, and seeping through the empirical research are elements of a freak show, the man who literally was frozen alive. The old woman whose Alzheimer's was reversed by a B12 injection could, at a stretch, be out of Ripley's Believe It or Not. His writing also led to feelings of unease. One case in particular was a man whose behaviour resulted in him downloading child pornography, and this was solely attributed to neurological damage. Surely it can't be that simplistic. As a reader, I felt both a morbid fascination and also genuine empathy. The brain is both so powerful and vulnerable. But what I took out most from this read wasn't the stories of Sachs the scientist, but as a person, the man who in spite of his diminished eyesight didn't want to read with a Kindle because I want a real book, 
with paper that I can slip into my pocket, or how he reminisces about his encounter with an orangutan in a zoo. He reflects on his death with a gentleness and acceptance, and he expresses his hopes for our world. Right now, I do so wish he could have written one last chapter, offering a unique take on the aftermath of a pandemic. Oh, can I borrow that one from you next, Vanessa? It sounds fantastic. Now on to some fiction. We welcome Beryl Eichenberger to tell us about a book that has had a lot of great press internationally. Girl A by Abigail Dean is a new release, and it's billed as a propulsive psychological thriller. What did you think, Beryl? Did it keep you up all night? Nuanced, sinister, horrifying, gripping. This psychological thriller is not only a page-turner, but it's thought-provoking in the extreme. In our daily devouring of the news, there have been terrifying tales of children kept in chains, underground, abused, and neglected, to the extent that we ask what makes parents so unbelievably cruel to children seemingly conceived in love. Abigail Dean's debut novel, Girl A, exposes all of this and more as she steadily builds the suspense, drip-feeding information in a story that makes your skin crawl and lodges in the crevices of your mind. Lex Gracie, girl A, is 15 when she escapes her family house of horrors and exposes the untenable circumstances of her and her siblings. Her religious fanatic father has descended into complete madness. The compliant, mostly pregnant and very weak mother has allowed the cruelty to escalate as the six siblings are deprived of freedom, light, food, and human contact, they are all without. What follows is father's suicide, a public outcry, and the bringing of mother to justice. With media gobbling at the story, the children are mostly protected, but there is always a trickle of information that identifies them as having endured this unspeakable childhood. It is within these bounds that the story explores relationships of the children and ultimately with their friends and lovers. The story opens with Lex some 15 years later. She has a good life as a successful lawyer living and working in New York. Returning to the UK when the imprisoned mother dies, Lex is the appointed executor of the house on the edge of a north of England moor, the House of Horrors. While she has no desire to visit that place or the horrific memories, she sees a positive solution that she and her sister Evie turn the house into a community and rehabilitation centre. But she has to get signed permission from her siblings, and therein lies the tale. There has been little sibling communication since the escape. Adoption, new families and circumstances have dictated this. But Lex and the younger Evie have retained their strong bond through their having shared a bedroom. Ethan, the eldest son, has also remained within their orbit, seemingly overcoming the trauma by having an exemplary life as headmaster of a public school. This is a story where concentration is required as Dean takes you from past to present with speed and skill. Measured information develops the story into an unexpected climax. We meet each of the siblings, severely damaged Gabriel, Bible-punching brittle Delilah, Ethan and his thin veneer, the hidden-from-view Noah, the ethereal Evie and the ghosts that Lex lived with. 
Dr. Kay is the understanding forward-thinking psychiatrist who remains in Lex's life throughout. And then there is Anna, Ethan's gentle fiancé. We experience a neglected house with its tumours of mould, the territory that Evie and Lex struggle to cross. Well-constructed and malignant descriptions add to the ugly picture. This is a powerful story, thoughtful yet shocking, bringing with it many surprises as the narrative develops. There is the question of genetics, as Dean threads a clever insert of a client that Lex will be working with, raising in her mind the chance of the madness being handed down. It questions the damage lying sometimes dormant through much of a life until circumstances bring it to the fore, and to what length the mind will protect the victim with a fiction invented to overcome the pain. But overall, it is a book of hope as we engage with Lex as she deals with her demons. Colonel Bogey March from the film Bridge on the River Kwai, performed by Jeff Love and his orchestra. And of course, I'm Paige Nick, and you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, which might just be the nicest place to be on a Monday morning. 
Next up, Philip Todres chats to Ben M. Freeman about his book, Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People. This was launched hot off the press about two weeks ago. Freeman is a wordsmith of note, and he tells an engrossing story. I'm talking to Ben M. Freeman, the author of Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People, which was launched internationally on the 14th of February. And in fact, it was launched in Cape Town together in association with the Gitlin Library and the South African Jewish Museum. Ben, I'm going to ask you three questions, really, and relates to the title of the book. It's called Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People. And there are three words I want to zoom in on, which is pride, rebuilding, and people. The question really is, pride, I assume, is looking at yourself and accepting who you are, rebuilding that on basis of knowing more about yourself, and then the use of the word people, not religion, but the Jewish people. Would you like to comment on that as a fair assessment of where I'm at in terms of the book? That was absolutely perfect. You summed it up better than I could. Absolutely, pride is about collective and individual self-esteem. It is about not just accepting who you are, but being proud of who you are, which I think particularly when you're a minority group is incredibly important because we are at risk from being shamed by the wider world. In the case of Jewish people, that would be the non-Jewish world. And rebuilding was in reference to the fact that actually pride has been a component of Jewish identity for a very long time, for thousands of years, in fact. Perhaps it might not have been called pride, but this idea of being committed to Jewish life, fighting for Jewish life, is not a new idea. So I wanted to honour that. I wanted to honour, for example, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprisers and other upstanders during the Holocaust who fought. So it wasn't about this idea of building it, because we have something, we're not starting from scratch, but it is about um, starting from a place of pride, and that, for us at this time, is a moment of rebuilding, because I believe that we have been shamed by the wider world. And you're absolutely right in terms of the word people, and that was really something that I considered a great deal when naming this book. And there were other kind of titles floating around, And the reason I settled on people is because I think that is probably the best description of what we are. We're quite complicated. We're not just a religion. We're not just an ethnicity. We're not a race. And I think a lot of people, including Jewish people, do not really understand what Jewish people are. And more often than not, especially in Britain and America, people say, okay, you're a religious group whereas that is not a full understanding of who we are. So it was very important to me to include this idea of peoplehood and as part of the movement to rebuild our peoplehood, to redefine our peoplehood, and to reclaim our peoplehood. Well, I think that's a very important issue because you're also dealing with the cultural aspect of the people. In this day and age of globalization, I think one of the scary things we've got to look to in the future is promoting those different senses of culture before we all disappear into one sort of English-Chinese group as opposed to various cultural bodies. Absolutely, and I think that it's really important to integrate with wider society, and particularly for Jews living in the diaspora, which means outside the state of Israel, we are members of our respective cultures or countries. So in your case, South Africa, in my case, Britain. But I think 
part of Jewish pride is understanding that we should integrate, but we should integrate as proud Jews. So therefore, we should do our civic duties, but also we can expect and um, perhaps even demand a certain amount of respect back, not just because we're Jews, but really because we're people. And I think that Jewish people, particularly, especially in reference to the way that anti-Semitism manifests, sometimes do need reminding that we are actually allowed to advocate for ourselves. And also that we're of a diverse people, because I think the interviews in your book are particularly important to me, because you have a range of seven people. Perhaps you'd like to just focus on that for a minute? Absolutely. So I am trying to build a movement. I'm trying to build a global movement, a multi-generational movement. And that means that it has to reflect all aspects of Jewishness and all types of Jewishness. So I sought out seven individuals from around the Jewish world um, to interview to kind of gain a wider perspective on their ideas of Jewish pride. Because, of course, I can give mine, but I'm just one person. So to make sure that every Jewish person could relate to this book in quite a personal way, I ensured that others were interviewed as well. And we discussed this, that there is an enormous amount of diversity in the Jewish world, and that's amazing, and we should celebrate it, and it's beautiful. But fundamentally, we must not forget that we're one people. So the Hebrew phrase is am echad, one people. So while some of us may be from Algeria, some of us from America, some from Portugal, some from Persia, or modern-day Iran, we have commonality, we have the same roots, and we can come together as one while still recognizing and celebrating our differences. Well, you've certainly made us think about that, and I think one of the things that comes through is education, knowing who you are. And as an educator yourself and someone who also teaches in the area of Holocaust history, you certainly bring this through very provocatively and very interestingly. And I think this is a book which, for me, importantly, is something that's not only for a Jewish audience. So we've been speaking to Ben M. Freeman, who has written a very engaging book, which is Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People, and certainly worth a read to get a better understanding of who you are as a Jewish person and also who the Jewish people are from another younger and I think quite provocative perspective.
You're listening to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, and that was The March of the Little Lead Soldiers, played by the Paris Symphony Orchestra and conducted by René Leibowitz. Right, back to that huge to-read pile. How about something local next? Leanne Voicy chats to us about a book called At Any Cost, by journalist Stephen Tim. This one is about Iran Eyal. He's that South African fraudster who took the tech world for more than $40 million. It's a lot of con. What did you think of it, Leanne? From the get-go, this non-fiction book is as ephemeral as the man it is about. The author, Stephen Tim, a well-respected journalist, has undertaken the true story of Iran Ayal, a South African tech entrepreneur who lied, conned and embezzled until he owed multiple people millions of rands. The blurb looks promising. The reader is to be transported to a foreign world of tech startups, crunch bases, pay-for-click marketing, the myriad shiny new age masteries, which a lot of us know basically nothing about. The added sleazy bonus of big money, Porsches, mansions and departments in Bantry Bay in New York had me intrigued as to how it all got built up and then rightfully destroyed. But in there lies the rub. The world of IT and AI and every other computer-related acronym has no real tangible meaning for many people reading a human interest story. The author himself relates meticulously recorded facts about what was done and submitted, or not done and should have been submitted, at particular times, and then quotes actual people saying things along the lines of, I didn't actually understand what Ayal was proposing, but it was the beginning of the cryptocurrency explosion and we were all flying by the seats of our pants. Another hindrance is that every successful story needs a hero or meaningful anti-hero, and Iran Ayal is just not. Part of the problem is that the author couldn't find people willing to give insight and provide context, including family. And another big problem is that Ayal comes across as bland and just pathologically emotionally immature. Forget about finding something quirky or intelligent to like. I couldn't even be bothered to detest him. And the guy's an outright liar and thief. Another element present in a good story is the suffering of the victims being laid bare. Just one of the very depressing points made in this book is that while millions of children starve and others do backbreaking work for a dollar a day, in other parts of the world, Entrepreneurs, CEOs and business leaders 
are playing with millions of dollars and pounds and euros as if life were one big game of Monopoly. Stephen Tim, the author, reached out to many people and either his requests for comment were ignored or those willing to speak suggested that the lack of victims coming forward or pressing charges was because many of them were involved in shady business dealings themselves. In other words, this is not a story of widows and orphans being fleeced out of their last penny. Lastly, a juicy story needs the villain to face swift and fair judgment and punishment. But, spoiler alert, except for a few weeks spent in Rikers Island Prison in New York, Iran Ayal cut a plea deal, got no prison time, and lives in the country of his birth, Israel, where he is making no effort to pay back the stolen money as was agreed to as part of his plea deal. This is a fake-it-till-you-make-it, vacuous story built out of smoke and mirrors, I hope this thorough journalist takes on a worthy protagonist in the future. At Any Cost by Stephen Tim is available in hard copy and as an e-book.
The St. Louis Blues March, performed by the Glenn Miller Orchestra of South Africa, conducted by Johnny Cooper, right here on Fine Music Radio. And for more local stuff, on to some non-fiction. Anthony Fregen read Not Child's Play, Kidnapped, Held Hostage, a true story by Dave Muller. This book looks fascinating. It's hard to imagine what Dave and Sandy and their two kids went through when they were held hostage for two months in Mozambique. Maybe Anthony can give us an idea. In 1990, Dave Muller, together with his wife Sandy and their children Tammy 8 and Seth 5, set sail from East London in their yacht Arwen. This was the boat that Dave had spent ten years and most weekends building. They set off on their dream holiday up the east coast of Mozambique. Knowing that there was an ongoing civil war between Frelimo and Renamo, they'd been assured that the coastline is secure. They emerged safely after a violent storm, with minor damage to one of their sails, and continued their voyage. All seemed well, the autopilot set, the depth sounder indicating they were in deep water, and sailing away from the coast. Dave dozed off, only to be woken up in the early hours of the morning as Arwen shuddered, and he heard Sandy crying out, David, we've touched bottom. They were aground on a spit of sand, surrounded by the black of night. Dave and Sandy tried every possible method to refloat Arwen. Exhausted, they finally gave up and decided to wait for first light. In the morning, Dave could see their yacht was firmly held by the sand. They would have to wait for the incoming tide and then winch Arwen into deeper water. But first, it was time to celebrate Seth's fifth birthday. In the distance, Sandy spotted figures. As they got nearer, they could see it was five children and two much older adults. It looked like they were carrying sticks, but as they got closer, it wasn't sticks they were carrying, but AK-47s. It was a patrol of Renamo child soldiers, and the old man and woman were their captives. The Muller family were now also captives, hostages, caught up in the middle of a civil war. Their captors didn't speak any English, and they didn't know any Portuguese. Communication was by gesture. The prodding of an AK-47 in the back said enough for Dave to know this was no time for Hollywood heroics. Their dream holiday had truly turned into a nightmare. Dave felt the most appalling guilt that his falling asleep had caused Arwen to run aground, and that now his wife and children were in mortal danger. On the long walk from the beach through bush and forests, the old couple were taken away and killed. And now they had every reason to fear for their and their children's lives. Ahead lay forty-nine days where their emotions could change almost on an hourly basis. Depression, joy, desolation, fear, acceptance, hope, hopelessness. Waiting for the helicopter they prayed and hoped was coming to rescue them. On one occasion, Frelimo launched an attack on the camp. Amidst the sound of bullets and bombs, they were rushed to safety by their Renamo hosts, who, in spite of the circumstances, showed kindness in many little ways. To quote Dave, I felt some attachment to the folk 
who have protected us and shared the little they have with us, going to miss this extraordinary life, perplexing people. This is a brutally honest book, extremely well written. Dave Muller hasn't spared himself or his incredible wife Sandy in this frank account of their ordeal. Over twenty years later, talking to a group of Burundian survivors of their genocide, he broke down, and through his tears he said, They were just children. You don't understand. They were just children. This catharsis of journeying back to captivity in Mozambique resulted in the writing of this excellent book. Not Child's Play, written by Dave Muller and published by MF Books Johannesburg. Highly recommended. And now something a little lighter and entirely more magical. After reviewer Leslie Beek picked up The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse by Charlie Mackesy, she messaged me to say she just had to review it. I've only heard rave reviews about this award-winning international smash hit of a book. She's also been reading The Great Realization by Thomas Roberts with illustrations by Nomoko. So tell us all about that, please. Every so often, a book comes along that raises the hairs on the back of your neck and gives you shivers of delight. Those are the right books at the right time in the right place. I have two of them on my desk glowing at me. There were obviously going to be people stuck at home in lockdown who would turn their fancy lightly in the direction of writing a children's book. What shall I write about, they wondered. And the reality in front of them, COVID and all its ramifications, was a no-brainer. Several perfectly adequate volumes rushed towards the printers before we, least of all the children, had any idea of what was going on. The Great Realization by Thomas Roberts, with art by the brilliant Japanese illustrator Nomoko, falls into an entirely different category. It's not about hand-washing or hand-wringing and masks, although there is, of course, a place for reminders about those. This book poem takes a longer look with a wider lens through the gaze of a real brother reading to his much younger siblings. Thomas, whose job as a filmmaker and performance poet was abruptly put on hold by COVID, begins by explaining his own circumstances. The great realization does not seek to negate the suffering of so many. All I want is to offer up a message of hope and of optimism. I think he succeeds. It was a world of waste and wonder, of poverty and plenty, back then before we understood why hindsight's 2020. Words almost fail me about the other book I'm reviewing today, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse. Stars litter the book review pages like the Milky Way for this bestseller that touches every heart of every age in every way. You could read a bit of this book every day for a lifetime and never be tired of it. It's full of mysteries and wonder. I use my words. Let's use Charlie McKeezy's. We often wait for kindness, but being kind to yourself can start right now, said the mole. Sometimes, said the horse. Sometimes what? asked the boy. Sometimes just getting up and carrying on is brave and magnificent. What's your best discovery? asked the mole. As I am enough as I am, said the boy. Nothing beats kindness, said the horse. It sits quietly beyond all things. And 
What's the bravest thing you've ever said? Asked the boy. Help, said the horse. Read the small print and you will see that this book was published in 2019, before COVID, before change, before the great realization. Its truths are so profound, so true, that they transcend the trappings of reality because they are true. This is the way we should have lived, should live. There are, of course, also the illustrations, luminous, deeply thoughtful, beautiful, by the book. The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse is written and illustrated by Charlie McKeezy and was published by Penguin Random House in 2019. The Great Realization by Thomas Roberts with illustrations by Namoko was published by Egmont Books in 2020. That was March of the Toys from Babes in Toyland, played by the Metropolitan Symphony Orchestra and conducted by James Walker. Another March to celebrate March. Right here on Fine Music Radio, I'm Paige Nick and you're still listening to Book Choice. Melvin Minar returns with another local release, Rattling the Cage by Brent Mearsman, published by Pan Macmillan, 
Reflections of our democratic South Africa. Oh dear, I would imagine there's a lot of highs and lows in this one. Right, Melvin, more highs or more lows? Rattling the cage. Brent Meersman's new book of essays is a contemporary cry from the middle South Africa for what has been lost, what could have been, and perhaps what can be done to get us back on the once marvellous road towards a unique country, a place formulated and foreseen by the great fighters for freedom 30 years ago. Perhaps the biggest danger right now for our beloved country, beloved probably, as the great Alan Payton suggested in his classic 1948 novels title and subsequent books, because not only of its beauty people, but its unique challenges, is that middle South Africa seems to be losing dynamic interest in politics, and more importantly, its moral foundation. Corruption and the uselessness of politicians, the empty words of religious leaders, and now the science fiction reality of a scary pandemic, have blunted our sense of presence, of considering the future, that of our children and the planet, and all the great mottos of democracy, power of and to the people. In Rattling the Cage, Brent Meersman reminds us that amidst this numbing confusion, there can be clarity, common sense even, and even if the social complexity of the now faded rainbow nation is pretty daunting. What gives his book of essays to punch is that it considers issues that many of us quietly muse about, sometimes privately, sometimes around the bride, often in anger, more frequently in baffled surprise at how things had gone so wrong. Meersman's voice is personal in a way that suggests he is only one of so many of us to whom these issues are a daily puzzle. Well-informed, eloquent and cool, he speaks for us. While official political commentators in our mainstream media love their own voices, often a result of sloppy or lazy editorial management, and are regularly quoted, they seldom delve beyond the surface of the issue at hand, or suggest these matters are for debate, more nuanced than party slogans. Meersman, classically open-minded liberal, calls a spade a spade, but contextualize and fills in the details. Presented as a memoir of sorts, the scope of the 17 essays offered as chapters is wide. Retracing the political, economic and social transition, headline the first, while Disgust and Offense, Generation Z, and Love and Compassion, Our Place on Earth, concludes a widely meandering contemplation of the state of the beloved country, failed, nearly so, or not. Like Peyton, Meersman's voice has urgency. If the words and sentences sometimes feel a little unchanged in a stream of consciousness way, I suppose that's the privilege of the personal writ. I'm also not so sure about the cliched nuances of the title, which seem to undercut and superficialize the book's emotional urge. Nevertheless, Rattling the Cage is a must-read for all of us crying about our beloved country. Beverly Rose Miller got her hands on Slavit, Man on a Mission a biography by Albert Grundling, who is the Emeritus Professor of History at Stellenbosch University, and this has been published by Jonathan Ball. 81 years ago today, on March the 2nd, 1940, a child was born in Pretoria who would go on to become the most charismatic, attractive and gifted politician of his lifetime, Frederick van Zell Slabbard. He and his twin sister Marcia were born to a penniless single mother, and though his rootless childhood would scar him, it also gave him a lifelong flexibility and a strong skill set for survival. 
Dr. Slabbert was the mesmerizing, articulate leader of the opposition in Parliament, going into the brutal 80s. After 12 years there, when he judged he was no longer serving a meaningful role inside Parliament, he abruptly resigned and took up a less visible but important role in civil society. I was not coincidentally in Parliament on that fateful Friday afternoon in 1986 when he stood up to deliver his final speech. There was a stunned silence and many tears. To this day, tempers flare about his leaving. He had no staying power, said the aggrieved, including the remarkable Helen Sussman, whose 37 years inside Parliament entitled her to accuse him. This is just one of the aspects unpacked in this important biography, Slubbard, Man on a Mission, by Stellenbosch historian Professor Albert Grindling. His gift showed early. He was a head boy, head of the Rugby Eleven, a fine scholar and a gifted teacher. He had abandoned theology for sociology, though the author suggests that his missionary zeal in forging a better world never left him. I was also present at his first packed political meeting as a candidate in Rondebosch in 1974, and it was self-evident that a star was born. His looks and magnetic personality were both assets and burdens. A man of the mind, his celebrity status was something of a struggle. P.W. Boiter complained that he was too clever, something with which the Prime Minister was not afflicted. Slubbard's nature was one of action, specifically to break the logjam in formal politics which had petrified into immovable positions. His Dakar pilgrimage to meet the ANC was later criticised as naive, but how could it not be? Neither side had been allowed to know the other, and the very fact it had taken place demonstrated that negotiation politics was at least a possibility, something that was not generally believed at the time. This careful assembly of his life gives a balanced and nuanced account of a man who seemed to have it all, yet walked away into an uncertain future. It is possible to see that as impressive these days, when bipartisan politicians cling on to power, prestige and pork-barrel politics. This is not a tell-all biography. Grindling was perhaps over-careful about his private life. Biographies should be robust. The book describes his many male friendships, and yet it was the gossipy Jamie Allen's perceptive comment that struck me as most true. She wrote that though Slubbard was swooned over by groupies, grown women and gays, he had a look in his eyes like a patted pub dog that is longing for closing time. When he spoke in a room, all faces turned to him like flowers to the sun. We wanted to give him love, and he left, and we minded. There is a view which I share that we were lucky to have him at all. Maybe that's what we should bear in mind. With binoculars in hand, Jonathan Musicanth reviews Southern African LBJs Made Simple by Doug Neiman and Gordon King. The question is, will he now be able to identify these cryptic birds known as little brown jobs? I also hear there's a surprise twist in this book. Cecil's Southern African LBJs Made Simple by Doug Newman and Gordon King. LBJs, little brown jobs, the name birders give to those small, seemingly nondescript group of different bird species that appear impossible to identify, except that they are small and brown, more like little brown enigmas than little brown jobs. Southern African LBJs made simple, might as well have been called How I Learned to Love LBJs and Identify Them in Three Easy Steps. Once the LBJ code is cracked, 
identifying LBJs will open a whole new world of birding delights and opportunities. Those seemingly nondescript small brown birds will reveal their uniqueness. LBJs Made Simple is much more than a field guide. It's a teaching guide into the dark arts of LBJ identification. This book is not intended to be used as one would use a typical birding field guide. The book is an easy-to-follow, three-step method to identifying the myriad of Southern Africa's LBJs. The three-step process starts by first identifying broader general groups, then narrowing the identification down with visual cues, and finally identifying the species by observing more detailed characteristics, including bird calls. It's a process that even a beginner birder with some basic knowledge can follow. Step one is to place your bird into one of 13 families or groups, such as honey guides, warblers, scrub robins, etc. There's a simple-to-use description and silhouette of each family group to facilitate easy placement in the relevant group. Once you have found your family group, one simply turns to the page indicated for that family group. The second step requires one to note certain specific features relevant to the group to identify and narrow down the options for your target bird. Once you have a matching set of features, one is again directed to a particular page in the LBJ guide with the details of a number of possible bird subjects. For the third and final step, you will find identification details for each of a few possible bird options, one of which should be your target species. Details will include color photographs and illustrations, descriptions, distribution maps, preferred habitats, behavior, and other characteristics. Amongst these pointers is a barcode for each bird, which, when scanned using the free Strake Nature app, will play the particular bird's call. Bird calls are very useful for LBJ identification. There's even a function that plays a mini-tutorial from the app, giving you an oral comparison between the possible LBJs that you are looking at. The LBJs Made Simple is an invaluable tool to get past any birder's LBJ mental block. Its easy-to-use, step-by-step method will open a whole new world of birds and birding. And now for the call of the Cape Clapper Lark. And last up, our special guest review to march us out of the show comes from 13-year-old Jack McCormack and his twin brothers, 7-year-old Connor and Riley McCormack, who will be telling us a bit about what some of our younger readers or just our younger at heart readers should be looking out for. This is Jack McCormack, 13. My book review is about The Wild Robot by Peter Brown. This book is about a robot that is stranded on an island and begins to befriend the animals that live there. It is a very good book with lovely illustrations. I recommend it for ages 10 to 11. My favourite part of the book is when the robot is camouflaging herself to listen to the animals meeting. The following is part of the book. She'd gotten the idea from the stick insect, but Roz quickly realised that camouflaging herself as a twig was out of the question. No, the robot would have to blend into the landscape itself. 
She began by smearing handfuls of thick mud over her entire body. Then she plucked ferns and grasses from the ground and sank their roots into her new muddy coating. She placed colorful flowers around her face to disguise her glowing eyes, and any bare patches were covered with tree leaves and strips of moss. Our robots now look like a great tuft of plants walking through the forest. She waited for darkness, and then she paddled to the center of a clearing, nestled herself between some rocks, and became part of the landscape. Thank you. My name is Connor McCormick, and I am seven years old. I'm going to review The Prince of Pants, written by Alan MacDonald, illustrated by Sarah McTyre. I enjoyed reading this book. I got it for Christmas from my granny and grandpa. This book is about the prince, Prince Pip, who, who loses his pan, underpants, but then he gets shiny glow-in-the-dark pants. If you read this book in the dark, you can see that they glow. And that is my book review. McCormack and I am seven. The name of my book is Plant Life, 100 Facts by Myle Kelly. This book is about plants. I got it for my birthday because I love planting, especially with my mom. Fact 17, photosynthesis. Sticker on a leaf for four days. That sounds really weird. Sticker, sticker for four days. Then the shape of the sticker is on the leaf. My name is Riley McCormack and I am seven. And me, I just finished The Funny Thing About Norman Foreman by Julietta Henderson. She's a wonderful author and she was one of the co-creators of the award-winning British comedy series called Gavin and Stacey. This is a beautifully tender and funny coming-of-age story. It's about 12-year-old Norman Foreman. Uh, he has terrible psoriasis, a budding career in comedy, and a very dead best friend. And it's also about a single mum, Sadie. Both of them are really just struggling to get through it all in one piece. It's a good antidote to pandemics and politics and psoriasis. And that's it. I'm Paige Nick. You've been listening to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. My thanks go out to Mawandi for putting together this show and to Rick Everett for his selection of marches that helped us celebrate March. If you missed any of our reviews, the Book Choice podcast will be up on the FMR website as soon as possible. And now we're going to play out with the March of the Siamese Children from Rogers and Hammerstein's The King and I by the Theatre Orchestra, conducted by Frederick Vonch. May the rest of your march be bookie, and we'll see you again in April.
Yeah.